0: What up everybody welcome to another episode of the live better sell better podcast this is your host Kevin Dorsey aka KD and ooh, we're bringing it back and to the future today because I have on the show someone one I consider a very good friend. Someone, two, I consider a phenomenal leader and someone, three, who I think understands the closing process better than most VPs out there because he has been living, breathing and using the product that he sells for the last seven years. What's interesting for a lot of VPs and teams is they don't actually use their tool. And so then we wonder why they never learn how to properly sell it. It's a rare opportunity to speak to a VP who's been using and selling their tool for almost a decade and optimizing and changing and tweaking and making things better. In case you don't know who I have at this point, I have Mark Kozoglowe on the show today, who I have seen growth from outreach when they were just small, a couple people in a bedroom closet to the behemoth that they are now in the space. And we are going to be diving into closing but the psychology behind it, the process behind it, and how to do it the right way. This dude gets selling. He gets closing. Mark, my man, welcome to the show. What's
1: up? You're the second famous
0: KD in the world, I hear. I will take it. You know, like I may never be number one because I'm not as tall, but if I can be number two famous KD, like I,
1: I can check that box. I'm all right with it. You're better looking. That that's got to count for something.
0: That is fair. But then someone like you shows up on my show and just <laughs> completely shadows that out of the fact. You <laughs> so, so now the first question I should have to start with is, whatever happened to krillin? It like krillin? It <laughs> was the thing for like four to five years. Like whatever
1: happened to it? Krillin? It uh, was. Uh, I had. I was goofing around with this the team way back in the day, and I was getting them pumped. And I said, you, guys, we can't just crush it. We can't just kill it. We need to krill it. (laughs) And I had a a friend of mine who was in the office putting up some vinyl decorations as an artist. And he came in, literally I have it in my office right now with a five foot tall, four foot wide picture of a krill saying krilling it and boom, which, you know, I do a bunch of boom stuff. And and so um, I put that up there, but you know, after a while, when you start selling to, to, you know, the, the CRO of uh, IBM and all that kind of stuff. Like, I don't know if they want to see a cartoon krill saying boom on your LinkedIn profile. So it's time to grow up a little bit, I guess.
0: I don't know. I still love it. And I was sad to see it go. But anyway, we'll we'll get into the real stuff today around closing, because I said it in the intro a bit like you're you're very unique in in the industry because of the fact you get to use your product to allows you to better understand how people actually buy, because you also would be a buyer for your product. So let's start there for a little bit in terms of how can a leader or a team better understand how people buy their product, because I think that's where a lot of people miss from the get-go is they have no idea how people would buy it. How can people start to learn that process? Like, How would my buyers actually buy this product?
1: Yeah. I think what's interesting is that, you know, it's very, as you said, rare to sell what you use and Mm -hmm. to use what you sell. And like I always tell reps all the time that are uh, we're hiring here, I'm like, listen, you might sell security software, but you'll never use it, so you'll never understand it. You'll never really develop a passion for it because your hands aren't in it. And so I think that that's uh, you know a unique thing at Outreach is I'm ultra passionate about it because I literally use it every single day mm-hmm. for my own success, and I watch my team use it for our, our company's success. But I would say you know, in my past life though. I sold, uh, let's say um, one time my um, company came up with a curriculum for executive functioning and executive functioning is kind of like organization, prioritization, how you take notes. And they worked with um, experts and they I went around to schools with my reps and we sold this executive functioning thing. And so now, listen, I'm not a teacher. Right. I wasn't taking the executive functioning course. But what I did is I really started to understand why should someone get passionate about using this? Like, and so I went and found a few people that were just like the executive functioning gurus in my region of like 12 States. And I was like, just get me pumped up about executive functioning. Like, why does it change your life? Why does it help students? Why should my people be pumped about it? And then I just created that kind of energy around it. But I think that the thing is, not is is you can understand how they buy, but the more important part is why are they passionate around buying it? So go figure that out. Like get, get yourself pumped up. You know, if you're not excited about what you sell, KD, like get out. Mm -hmm. That sounds like, that sounds like a trap, man. That's like a jail. Like why would I sit in a jail selling something I don't, I'm not passionate about. I've never done that. I never would do that. Mm -hmm. But uh, listen, I think that that's, that's the key, man. Go figure out like why you should get excited about what you're selling. And what I like about that is, you know, you're
0: going to the source to get excited because I do think a lot of times I hear this all the time in the interview process, right? Of like, I'm interviewing reps, it's like, oh, well, why didn't you succeed where you were? And it's like, I wasn't passionate about the product. I've always been like, "Mm, like, Mm -hmm. is that a, that that's the only reason why you didn't succeed? What I love about what you're talking about is go find people that are and hear from them, hear those stories, hear that energy, hear that enthusiasm so that you can feel that way because you may never feel as passionate about it as a user would. But if you talk to them enough, you remind yourself why you're doing it. So I really, I really, really like that because passion is it's missing in sales right now, man. Like it's missing. I can't actually remember the last demo I sat in where I was like, wow, this person really like, cares about what they're selling or really is enthusiastic about what they're selling. Like, do you, do you coach your reps to that? Do you talk to that? Like how do you keep that passion high for
1: your people? So it does come across in the sales process. So we have a saying here, let your passion overcome your professionalism. Mm. You're so worried about sounding smart. You're so worried about phrasing stuff the right way that you're not afraid to get a little ugly, a little dirty, and a little bit of, You know what? You're saying that outreach won't won't affect your reps' performance. I'm telling you, that's BS, man. I'm calling BS right now. Like, you're going to have to explain to me, like, you know, you got to push back, not just like do it. So I think that 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 passion part sometimes gets buried because we're so worried about our technique or not saying something that offends somebody. Mm
0: -hmm. And what
1: what that translates into is it translates into you not being you. And when you aren't you, people don't want to buy from you because they don't know who the heck they're buying from. So like, you know, some people aren't like me and animated and energetic and like uh, argument to me isn't negative. Argument to me is an understanding. Like you and I can argue about something and it's not a negative to me. It's me helping to understand and I'm feeling your emotion levels on it. You're feeling my emotion levels on it. And We can walk away having learned more about each other and being tired because of that. Some people don't aren't like that. You know, they, okay. don't, they don't like the confrontation. They would rather have a more academic neutral conversation than I would. And that's fine. But you still got to find like your source and make sure that that source always trumps everything else you're doing. Your technique, your professionalism, all that stuff. If, if you do that, I think you got a real chance to be great in sales. Yeah.
0: No, I, I think it's so important. I hope people listening grasp this like you have to be intentional, with this, like intentional with your energy. If you not, or if you are not intentionally bringing energy or intentionally bringing enthusiasm or passion, it's not going to be there. And it does just become boring as the buyer sitting in a demo, like, Oh, all right. Oh, can we, yeah. can, can we just get to pricing already? Like I'm bored, <laughs> I'm bored. I'm tired of this. This is not fun. Right? Like Let's just get to pricing because that's all at this point I care about. Whereas if the demo is engaging, if that process is fun and you do look forward to speaking to that individual, you get you buy yourself more time. Right. You get to engage a little bit more. And I mean, I still remember you challenged me in the sales process with outreach and (laughs) like and I challenged back and you challenged back and I challenged back and then it was over. And we go right along to the next step, right? There was no like, you know, bad, ill or ill will feelings. And I think people miss on that so often, especially for the sales rep. So how do you actually, so we'll go here. How do you help your reps have that confidence? Because I think reps oftentimes they're afraid to challenge someone like myself or someone like you, right? Because they're they're the AE and they're speaking to a VP or an SVP. How do you help your reps have the confidence to maybe... Have those challenging conversations or to push back on someone who maybe quote unquote outranks them. How do you give them that sort of like oomph to say, hey, no, you can do this?
1: Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things is one is like just going back for a second to your thing about I'm not passionate about the product. Part of a sales rep's job is to get passionate about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And like if somebody interviewed with me and said, I'm not passionate about the product, that's already a red flag that this person can't get themselves hyped up about what they're doing and can't make decisions about what they can get hyped up about. Right. And right. so but like the so it's funny, our number one OKR for the sales org this year came out of our biggest learning of covid. And what that is, is our number one OKR is simply this, is we want to create a positive supporting environment that makes reps confident enough to take the risks it takes to win big deals. Mm. And so the way that you build the confidence is you make it the center of the culture that you have. Like uh, I tell every manager I hire here, I tell them, listen, you have to make a decision and be honest with yourself if you're a carrot or a stick person. We are not stick people here. We are carrot people. Now, that doesn't mean we don't hold people to a high level of accountability, but the way that you do that defines how you are as a leader, and we are carrot people. We are, man, I know you got more in you. Man, I know that you could have done better in that call. Like tell me three ways. I know you got it in you to figure it out, right? Like I know that you weren't satisfied last week with what you did on your call numbers. How are you going to change it this week? Like how are you going to get better in that positive and supportive environment? causes reps, one, to get vulnerable, to expose risk. And when they're starting to do that, then you can actually help them with the things. And then when you help them, they get better and getting better makes you more confident. And it's just like kind of wheel that you have to turn. And the minute that you get into, KD, man, you committed that last week and and now it's out of the, the forecast, dude. Like I'm gonna get my butt chewed because of that. The minute that you go to that easy button BS kind of leadership, the confidence levels drop, the positive and supportiveness drop, and then you're, you're out. But if you say, hey, Katie, last week you you dropped that, you had that in commit, it dropped out of your forecast. Like, help me understand what's going on there, man. Like, how can I help you get that back in? Like, what what do did, what did we misunderstand? Like, how can I get in there and, and help you get this over the line? Like, when you do that, everything else comes along. And I think that that's our biggest learning in COVID. It's like, just be positive and supportive with people and the other stuff will kind of come. I love that. And now
0: everyone listening, what I want you to do, I want you to rewind 45 seconds and listen to how his tone changed, because this is something I work on with my managers a lot as well. It's like, I want you to hear what I'm saying, but I also want you to hear how I'm saying it because the, what delivered the wrong way. You could say exactly what Mark just said, but it was still like, Hey, like you, you committed that. Help me understand what happened here. If you go that tone with it, You're missing. And I think that's where they don't understand the tone. So go back and listen, because he can't even help it. He's been doing this for so long. Immediate (laughs) tone switch. Immediate tone switch when he goes into that supportive mode. And that's what drives people. They need to know their managers believe in them. They are okay to make a mistake if they feel their manager believes, if they feel their manager doubts. That's when they're afraid to make the mistakes. They hide mistakes and they never actually break out of that. And so go back and listen, y'all, because that tone switch was, was beautiful. Like it's just natural for you at this point, which is great. So now you've talked about taking risks to close big deals. So I want to talk about closing deals because I believe you're a phenomenal closer and you understand the actual process to it. So I want to break down kind of your call tips and tactics at discovery, demo, champion selling and like that negotiation close, right? So let's start at discovery, right? Walk us through, I guess, either how you coach your people or what you think the core elements of discovery are. You had a poll recently even about like how complex discovery seems to be, you know, becoming. So talk about discovery a little bit on how to set it up the right way to actually help the close three months, five months, six months down the line.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Here's the, the thing is, is most reps, until they get a certain level of experience and tribal knowledge, are going to struggle with really great discovery. And even when they get to that point, sometimes they get so been there, done that, that they force the conversation down a, a route. So you actually need a discovery framework. Ours is called digging the pain hole. All right. And so the, what I always say, Katie, is like, listen, if you're walking along the beach and you find two gold coins, Do you pick them up thinking that's the treasure? Or are you like, whoa, I'm going to go get me a shovel and a backhoe. and I'm going to see if there's a treasure chest down here. That's what I'm going to go do. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? I'm going to go start digging a hole. And what most salespeople do is they walk away and they're like, I got two gold coins. I'm better off today. And nobody that two gold coins doesn't change your life. A treasure chest of them does. Right. Mm -hmm. And the same thing for deals. So the way that digging pain hole works is first you provoke, you start with a provocative question. Here would be an example of that. Katie, like, you know, I know you guys just had this big merger. I would love to know what the CEO came in to the boardroom with that first day. And he wrote on the whiteboard and he underlined it. And he was so upset that he jammed the the end of the dry marker into the marker when he was putting a period at the end of it. What was that that he wrote?
0: Mm hmm.
1: And, you know, so it's, you provoke them, you put them in a state, you give them a mental picture. You know, last time you're sitting down with lunch with three of your reps, like what did they complain about the entire time? And then one of them didn't even finish eating their, their lunch because they were so upset. You know what I mean? Like get them in. Don't just say like, what's your three biggest challenges? That's a bullshit question. Yes. You know? it's lazy. <laughs> so you provoke. And then the second thing is, is then you got to start to dig. All right. And the mm-hmm. dig is very simple is this is where a lot of people make it harder than it has to be. So let's say that you say, well, Mark, you know, we need to convert our inbound leads at a higher rate. All you have to do is take whatever they say, actively listen and package up a a a part of it and ask for clarification. Katie, you just said inbound leads. I talked to a lot of sales leaders. What does inbound leads mean for you? Because it seems to mean something different for everybody. And guess what? Now I get, I get a whole call, all this mm-hmm. color around what's going on, right? And that helps me like kind of understand like where you're at, what you're doing, why you're thinking about it. And the, so you might have to do a couple of those to dig, right? The reason that you're digging is to create a hypothesis. And so the last thing that you do is you do diagnose and confirm. You say, KD, what I just heard was inbound leads come in through your website. Your financial plan is you need to convert those at 30%. You're at 22% right now. Like, do I have that? And the reason for that might be because your reps don't have a standardized process. Do I have that right? And then, you know, if you have it right, they go off for 10 minutes about how you have it right and give you more information. If you have it wrong, they correct you. And then all you do is once you have that thing tight and you have, you kind of set, then you, you do a vision of the future. Well, actually, you know, imagine this, we have, you know, patient pop is, is actually, you know, converting inbound leads at 37%. And their goal was 22%. This is how we got on there, right? And I'll show you that in the demo uh, on the next meeting. But like, I wanted to let you know, like, we've we got a path to be able to get you to where you need to go. So, yes, you, uh, you provoke, you dig, diagnose and confirm, and then a vision of the future. That is a generic discovery framework. I don't care what you're selling, who you are. You can do that because it doesn't require any tribal knowledge. It a provocative question and then listen to what they say and ask them to clarify and you're good to go.
0: And I loved the the treasure analogy, because I also think oftentimes reps skip gold because they were looking for diamonds. Right. Mm. It's like they're not even lo- like they heard something would be gold but they're like, no, I'm looking for diamonds. And so they just walk past the gold. Like they don't even recognize it for the treasure that it is. And I've been like, I do, and you probably do this too, or maybe I'm just a psycho. Like I do this in the sales process. Like when I'm being pitched to, like, I will say something like they better catch this yeah, yeah. like on purpose. Like I'll say it and they don't, they just keep on their discovery path. I'm like that was a layup. That was just there for you and so like reps stop even like looking specific and just listen what is the treasure that you're hearing from them so you can dig so i love that framework and it is it's simple it's simple i think also notice what he said there's a difference between discovery and qualification Mm. notice he didn't ask me about my budget authority need or timeline in that framework like you can't combine those things those are very different things and i think oftentimes i actually love your opinion on it my like do you need to know about budget or need timeline yeah you do need to know those things but i don't like to ask those first i like to start with what you're talking about because if you're asking questions that only like benefit the seller i think the buyer starts to shut down a little bit. So then when you get to the provocative question, after you've asked me my team size and what stack I'm using and all this, and I'm like, whatever, like.
1: Uh, Bant Bant has a a, a very crippling assumption associated with it that you know what your, your challenges are. Right. Most people don't know what their challenges are. So how are they going to have a budget for something they don't know about? What is their timeline to fix something they didn't know was an issue? Like, like I think a rep's job is to create demand. Mm-hmm. I, I should be able to, in two meetings, get you so hyped up about what we're doing that you go create bank, budget, authority, need, and timing, right? You don't like that. That's go thinking that you're going to walk into deals that have that. And that's the only deals you're going to sell. I think that's a big mistake. I, I agree. And I, actually, it's a good order segue take. then. Sorry, say again? That's called order taker. Absolutely. Like if that's all you can
0: sell to is someone who already has budget, already has authority, already has a need, already has the timeline. <laughs> all right, like, here's the credit card for him. Like, what else do we need here? So now I'm, I'm with you there. And that's also, what's fun, you know, again, for someone like yourself, that's come up in this game, like, you know, like now outreach is big and now there's a brand and now you have this marketing machine and now you have all that early on. You didn't, you had to earn that right. You had to earn the respect. You had to earn the ticket. You had to earn people actually buying for it. And that to me also is becoming a lost art in a way of like, okay, how do you create what you just said? Okay. You did discovery. How into meetings then do you create that demand? Because so many companies and reps that are listening like, Oh, they weren't interested. Mm -hmm. That's your job. That is that is literally why we have salespeople is to create that interest and wanting demand. So let's take this next step. Say we did great discovery. How then do you actually create that demand, that desire with the people you're
1: talking to? So there's two ways to create demand. One is aspirational selling, which means they want to go up to something that they aren't currently at. And the other one is pain selling, meaning they want to go from somewhere they are up to a different level. Right. And so those are the two ways to create demand. It's a delta. Delta. There's a delta between the way they currently operate and the way that they want to be operating. And that can be a negative or a positive delta. Now, uh, brain science tells you that people are like six or seven times more likely to run away from something negative as they are to run towards something positive. Mm. So, you know, if I tell you you're about to lose ten thousand dollars, if you don't replace your windows, it's way better than saying you're going to gain fifty thousand dollars in energy efficiency over the next six years. People don't care as much. Right. And so the so I like to create enough pain and misperformance and the consequences of that that causes people to run away from it. And then that creates the gap. And the gap then is that visualize the future part of this is what we can get you to. This is where you're currently at. And so, like, let's run away from that, because that won't continue right you'll you won't get fired you'll have to change something anyway you lose span of control whatever it is there's a consequence that we need to run away from in order to do it so that's what that's what I like to do is we have a, a thing called a hypothesis statement that we use in our sales cycle and the hypothesis statement is constructed as despite a We can't do X, which means we don't get Y as measured by Z. A is an an investment that you have right now. Despite this investment we've already made in this, we still can't do X. You know, we still can't convert our inbound leads, which means that we don't get Y. That's the above the line, high executive thing, which means we don't hit our growth plans, which means we're going to miss our IPO next year or whatever as measured by Z. And you need a couple metrics that prove that they aren't doing that. And when you construct that statement, I I can't tell you how many calls I'm on where uh, somebody's like, did we send you that statement? No, that's what we've come up with. You guys know our business better than you do, than we do. Like nobody in our company would have come up with that succinct way to understand the challenge. I hate that. Like, let's move forward. Like, let's I, I need to run away from that statement. Right. And so th- that's what that's that's like the practical way that we do it.
0: Mm. And it's it's gold. Right. And we preach this internally as well. And even some of the people I've worked with, you know, over at outreach in the past, too, it's like in order to sell someone something new, you have to unsell them on what they have.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. If again, if it was just as easy as you, it's going to be better with us, I wouldn't need salespeople if that's all it took was to say, hey, it's going to be better. We're going to two X this <laughs> or three X this. We wouldn't need salespeople. We could just run a webinar all day long and that's all it would take. And so unselling them on what they're doing. And I love that despite, yeah, right? Okay. Yeah. You do have something or yeah, you did buy, or you do work with a competitor. And despite that, you just told me you still can't blame. Yeah. <laughs> So why, why are we even talking about that anymore? Right? Like you still can't do what you wanted to do with that investment, which I think is a really strong, strong point. And it helps the company rally around, which I think is kind of the next point we'll talk about here is, which is champion selling. Cause what is it now? 11 some people on average are involved in a B2B sales decision. Like, it's insane. So like, how do you then help that champion through the process, both like helping the champion, but also how do you help your reps enable that champion? Because very rarely are you going to get the decision maker? Cause there isn't one anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. Like
0: there isn't a, it, that's also what's changed a lot in sales. There's not a anymore. Like the CEO could be like, yeah, I want to do this. And you got seven people that are saying no. Yeah. And he's like, Oh, All right. never mind. So how do you then help your champion or I guess navigating that sales process to keep these things top of mind throughout all this?
1: So my argument on this topic is that reps actually already know what to do. They're doing it with the wrong person. Mm. They are treating a coach like a champion. They are enabling a coach who isn't in the meeting with the champions. They're enabling a coach that tells them everything, but can't get the right people to the deal for the security meeting uh, to get through InfoSec. You're talking to a person that like likes you and gives you great feedback, but what they can't do is they can't go talk to procurement and get the deal pushed through even because they think that you have another tool that does this. Like the my I think that reps know what to do. I think that they're doing the right things. I think that they have misclassified a coach as a champion. And so all of that labor is for nothing. When you, you've got a champion, that's somebody that can exercise power, can influence the decision, and can advocate for you when you're not in the room. When you got those three things with somebody, you all listen. You show them the hypothesis statement. You make the you do your normal sales thing. You build the rapport. That champion can get stuff done for you. It doesn't mean you're always going to win the deal, right? right? But it does mean that they can go do stuff for you. Uh, I think that most reps spend too much time on coaches because coaches are easy. They're always positive. They're they they tickle the happy ears and they don't do the hard work of saying, you know what? This person is just a coach. They're not somebody that can actually get something done. How do you help your reps identify the difference? Right. So
0: like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. You have a coach. You don't have a champion. How do you identify and then how do you try to get a champion?
1: So the number one marker for us for a champion is the ability to get cross-departmental people in the meetings to get stuff done. And so if I go to you, Katie, and I'm like, listen, we need to do this and this and this. Can you get an enablement and a RevOps person on the phone with us next week? And you go do that. I know you're probably a champion. If you're like, well, why don't we have another meeting? And, you know, I know you want to talk to Bob, but Judy's actually, and Judy's way below Bob, probably better. That's when I start to know that you're not a champion. And then the second reason I know is, is that advocation when you're not there part is, are you willing to get with me to review my materials before big meetings? Love that. And if you're willing to do that, and then are you willing to let me coach you on how to get this done because you want it done so much? And so like that's the those are the kind of the two or three things that we use here to really look at a champion like title can be confusing. To your point earlier, just because mm-hmm. you have the CEO doesn't mean they're going to make the decision. And so we just like to think about it as like, can they get the people can they get people organized and moving? And then are they willing to help uh, collaborate with us on the strategy to, do, to best do that? Because they know those people better than we do.
0: Uh, I think that's key. And they we do as reps and as managers and as leaders. Helping your reps listen for these things because they do, they get coaches, the happy ears. Oh yeah, sure. Sure. Like, all right, yes, I got them. Uh, no, you don't. It probably isn't that way, right? And we're just trying to listen with happy, happy ears. And so let's bring this home then, right? So we've done proper discovery. We have done a great job of calling the unselling process through the demo, getting people excited. We're enabling our champion. We've identified who it is. Now we're getting towards the end around call called negotiation, the close, right? So what are some things you help to finish it? Because so many deals, they get to that 80% mark and it's that last 20% that it just fizzles out and the time kills the deals or something goes wrong there. How do you help finish the sales process as a closer and your team?
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to spend long on the generic answer, which everybody knows is you first of all, got to ask for the business, right? And you know, so many calls where the rep never asks the hard question is, are you willing to buy? Right. Right. And so that, that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. If you don't get that, And you need that explained. You need a little bit more coaching. Right. So that's the first thing. Here's the other thing that I think is really important uh, when it comes to negotiations specifically is I think most people go into negotiations with zero plan. Mm -hmm. Their job is to just keep as much as I can. And that's a crappy plan. So what we teach at Outreach is you have. Where do you want to land? Like ideally, like go to finance and get it figured out where you think this is a great deal, your manager, what's the top end of that? And what's the low end of that? Like, what's the least that you'll do that you'll be able to succeed and go in with those three numbers and then look at what you're doing and be like, okay, if price is high, then maybe uh, time or, uh, you know, um, the number of years on a contract can be low, Right. But but if price is low and number of years is low, maybe then referrals and case study and stuff is high. But what you're not going to do is you're not going to give them everything that is important to you on low and everything that's important to them on high. It needs to be a trade off, Right. And I think that what most reps do is they don't they don't do give gets like, Katie, listen, willing to do an extra 10 percent. But I can't go to finance and get that approved without you giving me something back. This is what I would think would be valuable—an extra year on the contract. Can we do that? No. Well, then I don't know how I'm going to give you 10. percent How would you solve that? Right. Ooh. Oh, yeah, I just did something there, right? Yeah. But but that's a, that's that's what that's what gets lost in the negotiation stuff is people don't have a plan. They don't know what is the floor. They don't know what is the ceiling. They don't know what that would be a good outcome. When you go in with those things, and then you start to look at all right, what's the highest price I could get? The lowest price? The price I want? What's the number of years most I could get? Whatever. What's the amount of pro-serve? The most I would want to get for pro-serve fees and the lowest. And once you map that kind of stuff out, then you can kind of see, all right, they're asking here, oh, I'm low here. I can ask for something else. And then that starts to even it out and makes it a real negotiation, not just you giving.
0: (laughs) I I love it. I want to call out something you did there. There's two things you actually brought up. One, the the magic word that I hope y'all caught was trade trade right it's not if all you're doing is giving that actually is not a negotiation you're just giving things away versus that give get what you're trading they want lower price okay that's what they want what's something you want that's mm-hmm. a trade right now you're sitting on the same side of the table a little bit of like okay you have this that I want I have this that you want and let's find that but then talk to me about that that how question you just kind of threw out there subtly which is beautiful right I can't go to them, you know, to finance as this 10% discount. If we can't have X, how would we solve this? That was fucking
1: glorious. I call, I call that sales judo. All right. So judo is the martial arts uh, practice that uses someone's own energy against them. Right. Yeah, so the idea is you can do the same thing with an objection is you take the energy of that objection and you transfer it to back to the person to, for the answer. So if somebody says, hey, Mark, you know, we, well, I don't think that we can do because of price. Katie, like I'm sure there's a lot of negotiations that you're in where you can't go down and price the way somebody, how do you handle that? And you just throw their their question back to them. And uh, I'm telling you, like nine times out of 10, people answer their own question. And you don't even overcome the objection. They overcome it themselves. And, or at the end, you're just like, they, they offer a good solution. And you just say, well, why don't we do that? And then it's their idea. And they're much more willing to do it. But like sales judo is like a very subtle and awesome thing that people forget. Like, you don't have to give the answer every time. They can give an answer to their own question, and they will if you give them a chance.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I was, that was just beautiful. Right? And again, like he, he's so good at this. It just happens naturally. Right. It's like, well, how could I do that? And this is the level of competence that leads to confidence. When you know what you're doing, when you know what you're doing, you're confident in that moment. And it just works and it just happens. And so that was, I was so glad that came up because that was perfect. So, all right. Now we're we're already at 40 minutes. This goes way too fast every single time. So let's bring this home here, right? Because the name of this podcast is live better, sell better, right? Because I also have this weird idea that if we took better care of ourselves, if we had more energy, more enthusiasm, more joy, more happiness, the sales also improve. What would your live better advice be for people listening?
1: Um, this is a, uh, I think a big one. If you're in leadership, you have to make a conscious decision to enjoy people. Mm-hmm. It is so easy to get frustrated with people, to lose your patience, to think I've had this same conversation with three different people, three different ways, or why is this person always complaining? And they just did, a, you know, they just made $700,000 last year. Why are they complaining today? Right. And, and I, I have just, uh, Taken a conscious decision in my life, a step forward and to say, I just enjoy people. I appreciate that they have priorities that I don't understand. I appreciate that they have things that they're trying to get done that don't align to mine. And I'm going to enjoy the process of us working those things out and having those conversations. And, you know, every time I have a chance to interact with somebody, I'm going to leave, hopefully with them feeling better and more positive and me feeling better and more positive and us being a little bit uh Closer knit together. And I think that that's if you want to live better, like just enjoy people. Otherwise, get out of sales. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? You can go be a developer and you only ever have to talk to your boss and your keyboard. Right. But if you want to be in sales, you better enjoy people because sales is people,
0: especially leadership. Right. If you can't enjoy your people and bring positive intention, right? Like that's a big one for me is like always believing positive intent. Mm-hmm. Even if they did something wrong, even if they're frustrated, even if they're angry, it's like assuming positive intent first. Because if you're always assuming the worst in people, which is where a lot of sales leaders go, is it's the assuming of the worst. God, you get miserable and miserable fast and you can't lead people that way. So my man, this was everything I was hoping it would be. Where can people get more of you? Where can they follow you? Where can they find you? Where can they get more of your content? How do they get more marked in their lives?
1: (laughs) I don't know if you want that, but uh, I post on LinkedIn every single day. We were talking about it earlier, Katie. I I usually do a poll uh, that summarizes or gets people's temperature on a content text-based post that I do. And so Uh, respond to the poll. I get a lot of action on that. I don't get nearly as much on the good stuff of the content. So go check that out. LinkedIn is, is a great place to, to find what I'm doing. Yeah.
0: And go to his profile and click on posts and go read them. Right. So don't just wait for like what you see in your feed follow so that you can actually see the old posts. So my man, this was great. Thank you so much for your time, energy, attention, and insights. And I'm sure we'll be chatting a lot moving forward anyway. So appreciate you, dude. Appreciate
1: you, man. See